If you have your Bibles with you this morning or your favorite app, we will be in Romans 12. Romans 12. We're going to jump around just a hair. We're going to be in the first couple of verses, and then we're going to jump to verse 14 and really end in verse 21. And I remember one of the announcements that I had. You know what today's date is? October 27th. Today is this church's birthday. Did you know that? 166 years old. She looks pretty good, doesn't she? Oh, sorry. 156, sorry. She does look good regardless of if 156 or 166. She's looking really good. Yeah, happy birthday, right? Church, that is such an amazing announcement that we could possibly make. Uh, you don't have rural churches that can celebrate uh, these types of, of celebrations, these types of, of birthdays of um, uh, more than 150 plus years. And so we're grateful for the opportunities that we can have to gather as God's people to celebrate these amount of years. And so thank you for your faithfulness, your goodness and grace to one another, but also we want to definitely celebrate the goodness and grace that Christ has given and gifted to this church for so many years. So let's keep pushing and see if we can hit 250 plus years for those generations beyond us and ahead of us. If you found your spot in Romans 12, would you please stand for the reading of Christ's word? May you hear the word of Christ. So my dear family, this, and this is Paul writing, is my appeal to you. By the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Worship like this brings your mind into line with God's. What's more, don't let yourselves be squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and don't curse them. Celebrate with those who are celebrating. Mourn with the mourners. Come to the same mind with one another. Do not be proud, but associate with the humble. Don't get too clever for yourselves. Never repay anyone evil for evil. Think through what will seem good to everyone who is watching. If it's possible, as far as you can, live at peace with all people. Don't take revenge, my dear people, but allow God's anger's, uh, anger's room to work. The Bible says, after all, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. If you do this, you will pile up burning coals on his head. Don't let evil conquer you, rather conquer evil with good. Let us pray. Father, we thank you by your mercy and grace that we can come together and to celebrate your goodness that is found ultimately in and through your son and so that is the very reason in which we gather today and so if we've come with pain and anger and hurt whatever it is the emotions that have been really stirring in our hearts this morning May you give us much grace to open our ears and to open our hearts to receive the message that you have ordained for this very day. So now, open our ears, open our hearts, open 
all of who we are and not just give a little bit of ourselves, but to give all of ourselves so that we might hear your word and also be the church of your word. And so, Lord, now speak. For your church is listening. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This is the last Sunday of October, which means this is the last Sunday that we're dealing with this topic of wise finances. And I hope um, I've expressed to you with clarity the importance of this topic because maybe you've seen that I wasn't really dealing with how to you know, balance your budget better, uh, how to uh, deal with your money better. Those are fantastic and great topics, but that really wasn't the heart of this month's sermon around this particular topic of wise finances that ultimately what we find throughout the scriptures is that the, the, the treasures and the possessions, the money that you have is directly connected to your heart and that how you use that money expresses the desires and wants of your heart. And so it has been wrapped around this message of show me your treasure, as Jesus says, and I will show you your heart. And I'm going to try to continue that message today and to land the plane in this sermon series on wise finances before we move into the next small thing that we're examining and exploring as a church into the month of November. But first thing first, look, it comes to uh, these verses. Look at verses 1 to 2 that I just read a second ago. Paul is appealing to the church by the mercies of God in order for them to understand this very important component of what it means to be the church. As you have seen Christ himself sacrifice not just part of who he was, but the entirety of himself, you also, church, become living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Paul is opening up these, this, this first couple of verses of this 12th chapter, appealing to them to understand that as Christ gave everything, you also give everything because you are connected to the life and the ministry and the ongoing work of Christ himself. And so that's where he begins. What are you doing with the entirety of who you are? Are you truly leaning in to the mercies of God? Are you truly giving all of who you are or just some? Because that is... Those first two verses actually set the foundation for everything he will say in the entirety of Romans 12 and especially into Romans 13. So we're going to use that foundation of giving the entirety of ourselves as holy and acceptable sacrifices and then jump now into verses 14 through 21. So let's do that. Let's look at these verses. At first glance, these might seem like a bunch of to-dos, right? When we first read these, we say, oh, look at this and look at this. I'm supposed to do this. This is what my Christian life should look like. And in some sense, they are. But there's so much more than that. We need to revisit a profound truth that you find throughout the Bible and especially in the New Testament. It's this. Because God the Father has declared you as the church righteous and justified through faith in His Son, catch this, you're enabled you are empowered by His Spirit to perform right, righteous, and just acts. 
just as the ones that we just saw summarized in these verses 14 through 21. Let me put this in just very clear terms. Because of the life and ministry of Jesus, and now he's empowered you by his spirit, you can become like Christ. It's that simple. Because of what Christ has done and the Father has done through the Son, now you can be empowered and enabled to do the very same things as well. And these aren't just nice Christian things to do. They're displaying our acts in the, all of our bodies in faith that we are doing this, revealing Jesus and performing his gospel. When we live out these things, we are performing the gospel. So let's look at a few of these practical examples of what Paul's after in verses 14 through 21 with that in mind. Because Christ has done this, he has enabled and empowered you to now go and be this type of people and to reveal who this Jesus is. The first one we look at in verse 14 is this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. There's a couple words here that we might overuse in the church today. First, bless and curse. Let's look at each one of those in turn. To bless someone is not to speak some meaningless, repetitive response to a sneeze. That's you. Bless you. It's not the, the rich meaning of the word to bless. Neither is it some sort of wish for somebody or some empty hoping for somebody's well-being. It's something so much richer in meaning as it relates to what Paul is after. The word bless in the scripture is a calling down of heaven into somebody's life. To actually bless somebody is to call down heaven into their very lives. And to actually ask them, do you see this in your life? It's more than saying, you know, bless you in the entirety of you are, who you are. It's saying, heaven, may you come near. And now you, may you see heaven come near into your life. It's an appeal. It's a petition for God to act on behalf of someone and in, in their lives. Now, of course, this doesn't mean God has to listen to us. It's not like we have God as our genie in our control. It's not like that. Ultimately, all of this is up to God's will and to God's own plan. But we're at least talking to this God and asking and pleading for him to bless someone, to ask them, ask this God to see this need and to be able to pour his own life into that situation. Which leads to our second word, to curse. And now by this word, we don't mean those words that might slip out of our mouth when we stub our toe on the end of a table or a nightstand. That's not that kind of curse that Paul has in mind. What Paul has in mind by curse here is to ban from the benefit of. Let, let me say it differently. To ask God to overlook someone. He's saying... Don't curse someone and tell them that God needs to overlook you, to neglect you. So what Paul is saying is instead of pleading with God to overlook and neglect someone, Paul is saying ask God to shower his goodness into their own lives. But notice in this verse, it isn't just anyone. It's not just to someone that you met on the street. It's not just to someone that you've known your entire life to bless. 
Look at verse 14. It's the one who's been persecuting you. Someone whose intentions and their actions hurt you, not only physically, not only emotionally, not only psychologically, not only socially or maybe even financially. You're asking God to look at that person who is hurting you and saying, bless them. I mean, in all seriousness, God, may you bless them and bless them wildly, regardless of the way that they've been treating you. This way of blessing someone and not cursing them echoes the very heart and life of Jesus himself. Paul here in this, these verses is trying to convince the church of this reality. Here it is. This evil, this manipulation, these injurious acts that somebody might commit against you, and the evil that you see in the world, guess what? They don't reveal Jesus. And in all intent and purpose, what he's after is he's saying evil and injurious acts, yeah, they don't reveal Jesus and they don't express the essence of the gospel because we need to keep in mind this gospel message that Jesus has defeated evil. He has defeated sin. He has defeated all the broken things in the world. And he's trying to put this in front of the picture and in front of, of the church's eyes and saying, do you recognize that evil has been completely defeated? It has no more victory. It has no more sting. Now, will you understand that evil cannot be met with evil? You as the church are meant to express the goodness of God's grace and to be able to understand that through our actions that we are expressing that evil has been defeated and how has it been defeated by good deeds spe specifically the ones through Christ's own self-giving sacrificial and his humble love which bridges to verse 16 do not be proud but associate with the humble if there's one way to describe I think in in a nutshell the life of Jesus it's this he is the embodiment of humility. He is the absolute embodiment of humility. Paul captures this so well in the second chapter of Philippians when he wrote to this church at Philippi. He says this, Who, being in the nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. For Paul, it's not just that in Jesus, God takes on flesh. He also positions himself so low that he even takes on the role of a peasant-like servant. And then goes down even lower in status by taking up death reserved for the lowest scum of society and that's embracing a cross Paul in Philippians is saying how low can Jesus actually show his humility not only that God takes on flesh not only that he took on this peasant like status but he even took on death on a cross this is the very role and life of ministry of Jesus. Remember that this, Jesus was intentionally touching and 
healing and surrounding himself with people who were pushed to the margins in his own culture. The crippled, the blind, the deaf, the hungry, the prostitute, the stranger, the widow, all were forgotten in his culture and society, but not by Christ. He doesn't forget them. He doesn't overlook them. In fact, these were his very people that he surrounded himself with, and he loved them. He loved them. In the encounters that you see throughout the New Testament, you see that embrace that he has with those who are pushed to the edges. So to put on humility instead of proudness or arrogance that you find in verse 16, Paul is, isn't merely giving the church another to do. He's pleading with us to put on Jesus. He's pleading with the church to practice Jesus' humility as it was embodied through his own ministry. Now jump to verse 17. Paul writes this, Never repay evil, uh, anyone evil for evil. Think through what will seem good to everyone who is watching. That's hard to do, church. To realize that your life is on display. Always. Always. And I know that feels like a weight on you when I say those words. But Paul didn't mean for it to be burdensome. But to remind ourselves that we have an opportunity at every time and day to be able to display the goodness of Christ. And what he's doing in our own lives. Never repay evil for evil. Think how that can help and benefit others, the ones who are watching. There's this great passage in the book of Acts. Acts 8, in fact, where the church is multiplying in the, books of, in the book of Acts by the thousands. Literally, by the thousands, week by week. And there's this occasion where there's this Ethiopian eunuch who is traveling through uh, south of Jerusalem in a place called Gaza that still stands to this day. While he's traveling, Philip, one of the disciples of Jesus, actually hears from Christ and tells him essentially this. Get up, go to this eunuch who's come to worship in Jerusalem, and I want you to stop him, and I want you to tell him about me. Okay? So Philip goes, and lo and behold, he runs right into this Ethiopian eunuch. And here's this eunuch in this prestigious uh, carriage. He's in this chariot, and he works, we find out, to, uh, for the queen of Ethiopia. So this high political and social standing. And Philip noticed he's reading. He's not reading the New York Times. He's not reading ESPN magazine. He's not reading uh, the Herald Gazette. Here is this Ethiopian eunuch reading a scroll from the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah. And even more specifically, Isaiah 53. So the Spirit tells Philip, go and talk to him. Philip goes and he reads, to, the, the eunuch reads to Philip this passage. Listen to it. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. The eunuch turns and asks Philip this question. 
about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Don't you wish every encounter with a non-Christian was like this? It's like, how fertile can the ground be at this point? Here is a non-believer who has a scroll of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 53, and he says, tell me, you, who's this about? This one who is like a sheep led to the slaughter and a lamb before it shears is silent. He opens not his mouth. Who is this person? Jesus is literally throwing Philip a large enough ball to hit maybe a beach ball and he's got an oar in his hand. I mean, it's that simple for Philip to be able to connect these points. And the rest of the story goes on like this. Philip tells the eunuch the gospel story and how this one who has been led to the slaughter is none other than Jesus, the one who's just been killed, who has been resurrected, and now he has called out his disciples to announce the good news that he is king. He tells the eunuch this gospel message. The eunuch believes, looks over and sees a river and says, hey, should I now get baptized? Philip says, absolutely. This is simple. Goes down, baptizes him. Then he sends the eunuch back to Ethiopia who rejoices. We don't hear anything else about what happens for the Ethiopian eunuch as he goes back to the queen in Ethiopia. But we can probably imagine that he is telling an incredible story of what has just happened. But if we listen again to the passage from Isaiah that the eunuch was reading, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Philip connects for this eunuch the, Jesus' embrace of the cross as the suffering servant that Isaiah is writing about in this 53rd chapter. Even when Jesus could have fought back, even when he could have snapped his finger and obliterated evil, he doesn't. Because the way of the cross defeats evil. It defeats sin. It defeats death. Not by marching around evil, sin, and death. It marches right into evil, sin, and death. Church, the way we fight evil is never by repaying evil for evil, as Paul's very point is. And he's looking to the life of Christ. It's not a tick for tack, as the world might tell you. It's not, oh, you've slapped me. No, I slap you back. It's not about, oh, you've cursed me. Now let me curse you back. It's not about, you betrayed me. Now let me come up with an even more clever betrayal to get back at you. The life and way of Jesus demonstrates something far more beautiful in the face of evil, sin, and death. Don't repay evil for evil, writes Paul. But here's what he says in verses 20 through 21. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If you do this, you will pile up burning coals on his head. Do not let evil conquer you. Rather, conquer evil with good. Some people, Sometimes people might think this is somehow a cowardly way to live. 
they do. I've heard it told to me that this is an absolutely coward way to live. To not hit somebody when they've hit you? That's far from it. It's not gutless or weak. In fact, nobody looks at the life and mission of Martin Luther King Jr. and says, mm, he was a coward. He was weak. He was truly one who ran away from the evils that were threaded throughout society. If there's one picture of a modern-day example of Martin Luther King Jr., he, he understood if someone slaps you, you give him the other cheek. If someone asks you to go a mile, you go with him too. Or if someone curses you, you bless them in response. Or if someone does some sort of evil toward you, you repay him with good. Martin Luther King Jr. was convinced that the ways of Jesus and how he understood to defeat some unjust laws within the evil systemic racism of America, that you didn't fight evil for evil. And that's just a modern day example I'm trying to provide. That you instead fought evil by marching head first into it. And you display that justice, peace, and mercy of Christ along the way. What does this have to do with wise finances? Well, we might not know how a $100 bill can change somebody's life. We don't. We're not certain how paying for someone's electric bill influences their future decisions and choices. We might not be sure how sacrificial givings of our finances change anything in a person's life. Yet, church, we're invited by the scriptures and by Christ himself to demonstrate that these are the actions of the church again and again and again and again. That goodness defeats evil. And it already has. We're just awaiting for the king to come back and to put everything to rights. It's not out of blind faith that we give some sort or some sort of irrational obedience that we just give and not know what what Christ is up to. He's called us into an obedience to give sacrificially in active and trusting faith that this Christ is up to something in the world and he is asking us to be on board with it. Because in so doing we're somehow mysteriously participating in the work of Christ that he's doing right now. When we don't just give part of ourselves but the entirety of ourselves, as he says in the opening verses of this chapter in Romans. All of you is a holy and living sacrifice, not part all of who you are. And so by doing, we are extending the rule and reign of Christ our King in that sacrificial giving. So when we invest sacrificially in those around us, it looks much like a father who has recognized the risk and the agony and the faith that it requires to throw people a saving line. That they need it in that time. We recognize that there's a need to be able to throw someone and be able to bring them close to us and say, you are loved and I love you because Christ has first loved me. Jesus tells his listeners in Luke's gospel this. This is the 14th chapter. But when you throw a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, 
you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteousness. If we're ser- searching for some sort of payment or repayment on this side of, of heaven, we're sorely m- mistaken. Because it's not going to be that easy. If you just give, you're going to be blessed back. It's not always the case in the scriptures, but there's going to be a repayment in the resurrection of the righteous that Jesus tells us. In other words, sacrificial economics, according to Jesus, is about performing and doing not with the expectation of an immediate return. We do because we have first been loved. We invest in people by blessing them, not cursing them. We invest in ourselves in these practices of humility and holiness of Christ. And we invest in the lives of others because of the goodness of Christ and the resurrection of Christ who has defeated evil and the brokenness in the world. And we invest our pantries that we have in our homes or the ones here with food and drink in order to freely give to our enemies. The ones who might not like us. The ones who might persecute us. The ones who could care anything about stepping a foot into this church. We give because this is the call of the gospel. We're doing so in order to demonstrate the love of Jesus and our union with him. And if we give in order to receive, then we've not only downplayed the gospel, we've also diluted it. Because the Father doesn't give us Jesus in order to get something back. He just freely gives out of his love in order to restore and redeem a broken people. We've weakened and watered down its power and strength that realize that the gospel saves, the gospel sustains and strengthens us in our daily lives, our hearts and our minds and the entirety of ourselves that we can then give to others. To practice the king's economy, church, is to give sacrificially for others because the cro- that's what the cross of Jesus looks like. In order to practice this king's economy, we have to give in faith, recognizing that the Father has loved us and resurrected his son, but also the Father loves to resurrect dead hearts, dead people, and dead communities. He's in the business of raising people from the dead. And so when we give sacrificially, we are indeed demonstrating that. And it must, if I can tie this to the last two sermons, it must be given with a willing heart. It must be given with a soft heart. And it must be given with a heart that recognizes God's goodness in those times. I'll close with this. Recently I watched the documentary on Fred Rogers called Won't You Be My Neighbor. I'm going to throw it out there and say it is such a good documentary. Two hours of living into the life of Fred Rogers is uh, worth two hours on your couch watching the man um, in just the most simplest of ways relating to children, relating to adults, and changing an entire culture for decades. And in the closing of that documentary, you can hear a voice across from the camera asking Mr. Rogers this question. What do you mean when you sing, won't you be my neighbor? Mr. Rogers pauses for a second and then he replies, well, I suppose it's an invitation. It's an invitation for someone to be close to you. 
Because I think everybody longs to be loved and longs to know that he or she is lovable. That's the gospel in a nutshell. He understood that this isn't just about giving children education, information across the TV screen. He understood that this was something so much bigger. So much bigger in asking this question, won't you be my neighbor? Won't you be close? Let us share this life together and may I demonstrate that this love of Christ can be shared with the closest of my neighbors and with those beyond my neighborhood. Hickory Grove, when we've talked about wise finances in the month of October, that's simply what we're saying, what Fred Rogers said. And specifically what the scriptures are saying, we've been invited into the love of Christ and then we invite others into that love by sharing our possessions. Not because we're supposed to, because we're called to be a people of obedience and loving obedience that our hearts are soft for those kinds of giving. And that's the invitation that is spread to every one of our neighbors where we give the entirety of ourselves that Paul says in the beginning of this Romans chapter 12. Not just part, but the entirety of ourselves, the entirety of our hearts and our heads, our bodies, our hopes, and even, yes, our possessions and treasures. Wise finances, I hope you've seen in this month, is less about how much money you have in your bank account. It's less about balancing your budget, as healthy as those topics are, and they should be talked about. But the aim of this month has been more about experiencing that love of Christ so that we can ask those around us, won't you be my neighbor? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the reminder that you have invited us close into your presence through your son's sacrifice. And that you didn't owe us this. You weren't obligated to act, but rather you acted out of sheer love and grace towards us. That you demonstrated this so clearly and concretely in and through your son. And so now we recognize, as we said at the beginning of the sermon, that you have enabled us, you've empowered us by your spirit to be your son's presence in the world. That our possessions are not really our own, but they are lended to us as gifts so that we might share with others. And that truly investing in the kingdom is taking those possessions and seeing that we can leverage them for your kingdom. And so, Lord, may you open our eyes to see those things. It's not about this is mine and I keep it away from you. But, Lord, instead, how can this be used for your kingdom and glory and honor? And so, Lord, as we end this time, I pray this, that you would flow through us. That you would heal our bruises. And that you would use us. Christ, please help. Please heal us. Please forgive us. And may you please reveal to us what we're called to be. Give us strength and make us well. Help us live in the ways in which you have called us to live. And may you always dwell with your church in order to demonstrate your grace in and through us. Jesus, you are our safety. 
You're our rock. So, Lord, may you give us grace. May you keep us safe as you extend us into our communities to demonstrate that gospel of grace. And all this done for your name's sake. We offer these things in your son's name. Amen.